0: This is the BBC.
1: This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK.
2: Okay. <clears throat> All right. Beyond Reasonable Doubt on BBC Radio, Radio 5, Live. 5
1: Live. Your Honor, this uh, case uh, originated from an automobile accident on April the 22nd of last year.
0: Hello, this is Beyond Reasonable Doubts, episode 14, Judge and Jury. In this specially extended edition, we'll talk to some of the key players in the trial and take you backstage to find out what was going on behind the scenes. Next time, you'll hear a full, unedited interview with Michael Peterson himself. But this episode features the DA, the judge, and perhaps the most important people in any courtroom, the jury. I'm Chris Warburton, and we're back in Durham. And more specifically, we're back in Court 7D of the modern nine-storey courthouse in the downtown, redeveloped part of the city. It's the court where we saw Michael Peterson take the Alford plea in February this year and then leave a free man. Judge Orlando Hudson was sitting then, but today, on this more routine, sunny Friday morning, there's another judge presiding. He was a DA when you first heard him on Beyond Reasonable Doubt.
3: All right, Madam Clerk, court is considered plaintiff's motion to continue the matter as it relates to...
0: You would have recognised those measured southern tones as belonging to Jim Hardin, now Judge Jim Hardin, the but then the, the trial prosecuting trial, DA and head of the team trying to secure a murder conviction against Michael the Peterson.
3: The defendant says that Kathleen Peterson's death was caused by a tragic, accidental fall downstairs in their home. And we say, on the other hand, that she died... A horrible, painful death at the hands of her husband, Michael Peterson. I am clerk at the courts view the defendant's affidavit finds he's not able to hire a lawyer due to lack of financial resources.
0: This morning, Judge Hardin is presiding over some routine hearings from a group of defendants who have been brought to him from Durham County Jail. They are handcuffed, they wear the orange uniforms of prisoners, and none of them look like they've had much sleep. One by one, the alleged breach of bail conditions is read out. There's usually a drug connection relating to whether the defendant has attended rehab programmes. And Judge Hardin asks each of them in turn, four men and two women, whether they wish to represent themselves, hire a lawyer or get a court-appointed one. Jim Hardin served as a colonel in the US military reserve and served in Operation Desert Storm in the 18th Airborne Corps. So there was this moment when one of the defendants, a Mr Coombs, came before him.
3: When did you get out of the service, Mr. Coombs? Uh, 1996. Which branch?
0: US Army.
3: What was your MOS?
0: 920402. In one of them's branch. So
3: well, thank you for that, Mr Combs.
0: The air is of calm authority, like this later on when he has to make a call on whether someone should be allowed to testify as an expert witness. All right,
3: So we're going to handle this. I'm going to conduct a Wadir hearing under Rule 104. I'm going to let you ask your questions of your witness, and I'll determine whether he needs to testify as an expert or not. So, a typical morning's work? Uh, In a lot of respects, you'll see a variety of types of cases in that courtroom. They uh, generally try to characterise the cases as one group so that we have continuity. For example, the first two days was generally devoted to probation hearings
0: and taking uh, pleas from defendants pleading guilty. It is the lunchtime recess and we're in a conference room near the judges' chambers and Judge Hardin has agreed to talk to us as enough time has passed since the Michael Peterson trial. He is accompanied by his daughter who is also qualified as a DA and he has brought photos and documents from the 2003 trial and they're backed up on a laptop which is open in front of us it is clear from our conversation that although he has all these visual aids in front of him, his memory of 14 years ago is as fresh as ever. The
3: first thing I saw was the photographs. And I have several of those yeah. here. And... the One of the first experts that I talked about within literally days of the event occurring was the medical examiner. And I... Obviously at that point she had photographs, she had not completed the autopsy, but she could give me her preliminary uh, determination as to what she believed the circumstances were, manner and the cause of death. And she made it very, very clear to me in a private conversation that it was a bludgeoning death. And from that point forward, we start looking at how that might have occurred and who was involved. Uh, We've talked to some degree about Dwayne Deaver. I met with him independently. And he had at that point done the blood spatter analysis of the scene. And he independently told me, without having any information from the medical examiner, what his findings were. And it was clear to him that it was a bludgeoning death and that uh, Mike Peterson was involved due to... A variety of factors, but it all basically hinges upon the, the physical evidence present at the scene right after law enforcement officers get there and begin collecting that evidence. And
0: actually, at the, at the heart of the physical evidence, because we're looking at some of the pictures on a laptop here as well, um, of the initial scene, and we can see. Kathleen, at the bottom of the stairs, it's a picture that some of our listeners would have seen online, I'm sure, if they had looked. Um, for a lot of people who have followed this podcast, it's the amount of blood. Sure. Uh, were they your initial thoughts as well on that?
3: Well, they were, and, and I've given us some thought. Now, and I was trying to think in terms of how lawyers look at working a case, especially from the law enforcement perspective, and then how jurors might look at it. And I realized that as the lawyers were developing this case, either either for our side or for the defense, it was clear that, at least from our perspective, this was going to be a battle of the experts. But if you really boil it down, all you have to use is your common sense. And if you look at these photographs and... You go into that scene, and I don't know whether you've gotten into it, but uh, at one point we had what's called a jury view. So the jurors had an opportunity to go to that location to see the confines of this stairwell. And I was a little bit ambivalent about doing that, but as I watched the jurors come out of the house, it was clear to me that that piece of the case had... A very profound impact on them I mean you can see these still photographs and they are dramatic but to take these still photographs and to put them in the context of that stairwell
0: is even more dramatic and actually I mean looking again here the amount of blood on the walls on the floor a photo uh, that I'm looking at here Kathleen's head tilted right back as well and the the blood that's kind of smeared on the walls there, the spattering that goes up uh, some distance as well. Um, And the other thing I guess the jury would have got when they visited that house, and we've seen a house that replicates that one already, the next-door neighbour's house, you get a sense of the the tightness of that stairwell as well, don't you? It is.
3: It's it's very close. I don't recall the specific dimensions of it. We had created... uh, full-scale replica of the stairwell up to about uh, the seventh or eighth stair so that we could uh, get a sense of it because at that point we were trying to uh, gather evidence and make decisions about how we might proceed and so we we had a a one-to-one scale of that stairwell so that we could do testing and do experiments if we thought that was appropriate and then we also had a a one to 12 scale of the entire stairwell which we used as a model in the courtroom and that helps as well but again coming back to the opportunity to have a jury view and those folks go in there and see how <laughs> truly confined this is and mm. the, the improbability of a fall causing that much not only physical damage but the blood evidence on the walls and about her clothing common sense can't be strained that far To make that work out as a reasonable uh, examination, a reasonable explanation of what happened.
2: I was kind of surprised, only because I really did not follow Michael Peterson before, during um, all of this process.
0: That's Kelly Colgan. She was one of the jurors who survived the gruelling selection process and found herself one of the dozen people who were going to sit and listen to every day of that long trial and feel the pressure of someone's future in their hands.
2: A little ashamed to say that I don't follow politics, so I didn't even know he had run for mayor. Um, I really didn't think he was a celebrity and having it come to where you have all of this film crew and reporters um it it made it interesting but it also made it a little unnerving because you felt like a lot of eyes were on you and a lot of scrutinizing was going to be taking place of not just the witnesses and whatnot but of the 12 of us we quickly bonded um we played cards, we would read books, we would go out to lunch sometimes. Sometimes we wouldn't, we would go on our, our own way. Um, we were together a lot and it, there was, um, yeah, we bonded a lot.
0: But when you were out for dinner, was there any kind of rule, right, we're not talking about the trial?
2: Oh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. There wasn't even a hint. It was like that directive was given to us and there was no... hmm, No one trying to chip in. No, no, no,
0: no. So what was the effect on your your lives outside of that, outside of the time you were spending (laughs) with the jury? Because it was intense and it went on for a long time.
2: Intense is a good word um, because you were absorbing a lot of crucial um, images, emotions, um, testimony, and yet you could not... You had to keep it all in, and um, keep a distance. You know, I, well, at least for me, I, I was very aware of if I overheard conversation, if I was out to eat, or if I was um, out in a store, or if I was passing by a, a little newsstand. Um, I was keenly aware to stay as far away as possible from that. In fact, one time I went into a jewel a jeweler. Um, to go get my ba- my watch battery replaced. And they had a little mini television on. I had rarely went to this jeweler, so I went inside, asked them to get my battery replaced so that I could wait. There was a commercial on, um, and then all of a sudden while I'm waiting, I hit Court TV is where it, the channel was on. And it was pretty worn that day, and I remember asking um, the salesperson, would you mind either cutting changing the channel or I could step out while I wait and they changed the channel really yeah
0: that's amazing but it must have been the other way around as well I mean presumably because you were on court tv and people were following this every day were you recognized
2: uh afterwards okay definitely I don't recall ever being recognized and approached while I was during the trial, because I don't think they could film us or take our pictures. Okay, yes. Um, I think the only way someone might recognize you was if they attended court. But I didn't have that situation come up until after the trial was over. And complete strangers would say, oh, I know you. And it could be a positive experience. It could be a very negative
0: experience. Very odd.
2: Mm-hmm. I remember, gosh, then this was probably um, three years after even and i walked into whole foods i had still my young daughter she was always petite for her her age and we walked to the back we were watching um a young guy cutting a big huge roll of parmesan cheese i picked her up had her in my arms and we were standing i was pointed out he he's looking up at me he goes oh i I recognize you i can't describe his voice because it was kind of creepy but um I said, oh yeah, did we go to high school together? And he's like, no, you were on that Peterson jury. And I said, yeah. And he said, how the hell did you ever find him guilty? And I had to just turn and walk away.
0: Were you as a team always 100% certain But it was Michael Peterson and Michael Peterson alone.
3: No doubt. Well, in terms of the homicide, there was no question in our mind that Mike Peterson killed his wife by bludgeoning her to death. And I brought these photographs for you to see as well. And of all the evidence, some of the most damning evidence that I believe was present in the scene related to his shorts.
0: Yeah, describe what we can see here.
3: Well, you see the front of the shorts, you'll see where there's significant dissipation of the blood evidence that was on the front of the shorts because he had attempted to clean the scene, and as part of that cleanup, he drenched himself with water to dissipate the evidence. But he didn't do that with respect to the back of the pants and under the pant legs. And if you look at the back of the pants, you'll see blood spatter all the way up almost to the top of his right pocket, and on the back side of the right leg, and then if you go inside of that pant leg, you'll see uh, a dozen or more blood spatter mm-hmm. marks within the pant leg of his shorts. To me, this is some of the most damning evidence that we presented against him. We had not only a blood spatter expert that could testify about that, but we had a fiber expert that said... This impact spatter is on the outside of the pant. It didn't drench through. It didn't soak through. It's on the surface of the pant, and there's no way for that to have occurred unless he was standing over Kathleen as he is beating the source of blood, which is the back of her
0: head. Yeah, and what we're looking at here is a picture of at the inside and the outside of those shorts that were being worn. And, and what what is that? Just describe what we've got there. That's a measurement just showing exactly the distance across between the different spatters ultimately, yeah? It is. And yeah. There,
3: there are a dozen or more uh, impact spatter impressions on, on that. Yeah, inside of the shorts.
0: Why don't just around that, because we're talking about this, one of the things that um, has come up when we've asked some of our listeners for questions uh, to put to some of our guests, including yourself, um, they've said, what about Michael, why did he take his shoes and socks off at that time as well, which was which a real curiosity for a lot of people. That's
3: a great question because here we have the, the left shoe, which shows impact spatter on the top of the shoe, so he had to be standing over her when this impact spatter occurs and, and when the source of blood is being struck to cause this, these formations. Now, we've talked about Deaver, but we have never discussed some of the other experts that we used that we did not call. We At that time, at least in in our view, there were three renowned experts in blood spatter, Uh a fellow by the name of Herb McDonald, Bart Epstein and Terry Labor. We contacted Terry Labor and Bart Epstein. And they evaluated everything that Deaver did and everything that Henry Lee did. And they came up and they came up with the same conclusions that Dwayne Deaver did. They they had a little bit of differences in some of the uh, tertiary Issues that he raised in his um, testimony and his, his examination. But the basics they concluded were absolutely on the mark in terms of how it happened and who was involved and generally what was going on within that scene.
1: Well, my name is Judge Orlando Hudson. I'm the senior resident Superior Court Judge for Durham County. Uh, you
0: can call me whatever you <laughs> you want to call me. I don't... We're in the same conference room at the Durham Courthouse and we've been granted some time to talk to the man who presided over the court twists and turns of the Peterson case. Orlando Hudson has been allowed to call himself judge for nearly 30 years. And before that, he was a public defender and an assistant DA. In other words, this is a man steeped in the law. So there he was trying a case which was on the television gavel to gavel, as they say in the US. And each side was represented by two very different, but both charismatic people. David Rudolph for the defence and the man we've been hearing from already, Jim Hardin, for the prosecution.
1: I thought it was going to be interesting. I've known both of them for a long time. Uh, I think I met David Rudolph in 1980. I had just become a public defender, I think, in 1979 in uh, uh, Cumberland County, which is a larger county in the state of North Carolina. Uh, And I went on a training mission to become a better lawyer, uh, at the University of Houston in Texas. And while I was down there, uh, he was one of the, um, trainers who taught us how to be more effective lawyers. And I believe at that time, he was one of the head, if not the head, um, public defender in New York City for, I'm thinking it was Brooklyn, uh, one of the boroughs. I don't really remember which one it was, but, um, And so that was the first time I met him. But uh, I've known Jim Harden a long time. I knew him when he was a young lawyer who came in on the staff uh, earlier um, in my career. As a matter of fact, we tried together his first murder trial as the district attorney for uh, this county. Very serious case where the defendant I uh, used a submachine gun, semi-automatic weapon, and did a lot of damage and, and kill people. Um, and uh, unfortunately, he lost the case. <laughs> so we got off to a rocky start, but uh, but we did better as as time goes on. Um, yeah, it was going to be a clash in personalities, uh, David Rudolph, Metropolitan, New York City type, even though... He hadn't practiced in New York for many, many years. That's what kind of lawyer uh, he is. Jim Harden is going to be the the genteel Southerner, uh, very smart, very very conservative, and uh, military lieutenant colonel. I think he actually was in the in the reserve. So two different kind of. Kind of the showman
0: versus the local boy. That's right. Yeah. How much did that play into your thinking of how you were going to preside over the trial? Because you know, it's part of your role, I suppose, to be able to govern relations between these two opposing figures.
1: Um, it wasn't going to be a problem at all. Neither one of them <laughs> was going to get out of out of hand. Mm. Um, I tried many trials with Jim Hardin. I tried trials with uh, David Rudolph uh, before. Uh, I didn't really see their personalities being that much of a a problem. It was going to be a hard-fought trial. I knew that. I was going to have to keep uh, them under control. Um, Earlier um, in the Peterson saga, at some stage, there was some conflict between Mr. Rudolph and one of the uh, assistants in Mr. Harden's office, uh, and that was Michael uh, Nifong, who uh, has a history from Durham out of the Duke Cross cases and those kind of cases that uh, that some of your listeners may know something about. Sure. Um, and I've had to talk to them on occasion about not being so nasty to each other. They right. were, they really didn't like each other, but Mr. Hardin didn't have that problem with Mr. Rudolph, and neither did Mr. Rudolph have any problems with Judge Harden. so I didn't think that was going to be uh, a problem. Uh, he is the
3: epitome of the zealous advocate. He and I have a very different idea about the rules of professional conduct and how one complies with those. And that's probably all I should say.
0: <laughs> but do you appreciate that the fact that the two of you were so different during the trial is it contributed to almost the appeal from the public, that there you had this brash showman against the more soft-speaking... Um, the local kid. Uh, you I mean, I was, say born in, I
3: was born and raised here. I <laughs> yeah.
0: mean,
3: I, I've lived in Durham all of my life and went to school here. And except for the time that I was in the Army and in law school, I've been in Durham, North Carolina. And uh, I think that's a good
0: thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in court, you obviously have to show professional courtesy to your opposite number that's throughout. True, that's true. Was this <laughs> Was this more challenging in this case than some of the other cases that you had worked on? I will
3: say that, I will go this far, I will say uh, that was one of the greatest challenges of my career in the sphere of dealing with other lawyers.
0: The late American poet Robert Frost came up with this oft-repeated quote, a jury consists of 12 persons chosen to decide who has the better lawyer. Did Kelly Colgan feel like that?
2: I felt at certain points this wouldn't be necessarily initially but I remember at certain points during the case I felt like I needed to um I, that I would be drawn into Dave Rudolph a little bit more but I think that's his style he likes to kind of try to mm let's weave my little uh web here and and then I would catch myself and I'd say I got to stay away from the emotional side that's being played here and stick to you know the factual what made sense <laughs> part so um and then very respect by jim harden really um i i liked his style very much i could tell that he was after to just give you the facts um, let you uh make up your mind he didn't seem to try and put too much emotion into it one way or the other and uh, i respected that quite a bit um, he was soft-spoken. Um, somebody that I felt really could get his point across without being, again, too de- too emotional or too one-sided.
0: Kelly also talked about how one of the defense team investigators, Ron Garrett, stared hard at the jury throughout. She said that was an attempt at being intimidating. Kelly and her fellow jurors, apart from enduring the big stare also had to sit through eight days of Dwayne Deaver's now discredited blood spatter evidence. On this issue, Kelly says, she can speak for the whole jury.
2: When we would be asked to go back into the uh, jury pool room because we would be excused for one reason or another, you know, they needed to take a break or they needed to discuss something outside of our presence. Uh, During that time, I remember there, you know, you could hear some sighs, and that just would give you, like, oh, my gosh, how much longer is this going to go on? Um, to hear now that a lot of um, that the appeal or the uh, reason that Michael's now out is because of what he did in other trials is quite disappointing. Um, only because, for me, Dwayne Deaver wouldn't have even had to get up on the stand and I would have still voted the same way. I didn't feel like we needed a spatter specialist to come and, and prove, try to prove that this was not an accident.
0: So Kelly is clear. Nothing else mattered. Not the bisexuality, not the Liz Ratliff case. The blood mattered. So why did Judge Orlando Hudson allow both those aspects of Michael Peterson's life into the courtroom itself?
1: I was concerned, as were all the lawyers, as to the unduly prejudicial effect that either one of those uh, decisions would have in the defendant's case. Uh, I think that it's a good argument that letting in the, the death of uh, Ms Ratliff would have been unduly prejudicial to the um, defendant. Uh, in essence, the state would have been trying to murder trials, And, of course, that's what the state wanted to do. Uh, and, of course, Mr. Rudolph did not want that evidence to to come in. Um, and uh, he lost that argument. But although it was straightforward, I, I recognized that um, that was going to be very damaging evidence as far as... Um, the defendant's case went. The sexuality evidence, uh, I figured that was coming in because it had a lot to do with the motive that was involved. Um, And although, you know, really under American law, based on the English common law, motive is not an element really of any offense, but it is something that the jury can consider. And of course, the state the state's theory was that there was this argument between Mr. Peterson and his wife having to do with her finding out about uh, sexual events that he was considering with uh, another party. And that would have been uh, the reason they had the argument, uh, so the state argued.
0: Because they had been portrayed by David Rudolph as as being an incredibly close couple, as, as soulmates, is the phrase that he repeatedly used. If he, if he hadn't have used that phrase, do you think it would have been such a straightforward decision for you over the bisexuality issue?
1: No, I, I don't think that really had had anything to do with it. I, I think that evidence was coming in. I, I think the state thought, quite frankly, that it would be prejudicial to the defendant to come in, and they were going to use that uh, any way they could.
2: Into my thinking and the rest of the jury, it didn't play a role. It really didn't. I mean, um, I think we were all able to separate that as being kind of periphery things that um, we could say, oh, I don't think that Kathleen would approve of this lifestyle, um, just given the fact that she had, I think, come from another marriage where there was some indiscretion but it wasn't a huge factor at all at least i know f- not for me
0: just tell me what we're looking at here because again this is on a presentation that um, that you've kindly set up for us this is the staircase in germany it is and it's a photo taken looking down from the landing and what that is it's trying to indicate the splatters of blood on one side of that staircase on the wall yes um there were question marks, weren't there, from, from different people as to quite how much blood was at that scene, which is, has always been slightly confusing.
3: Well, Mary Beth Burner and... I can't remember Miss Apple Schumacher's first name, but um, they both described what they saw, and uh, the nanny, Barbara Hale, described what she saw, and the blood spatter evidence that they saw in that stairwell was more than six feet high. It started at the top of the stairs
0: and went all the way down to the bottom of
3: the stairs.
0: We just saw a photo there of Elizabeth Ratliff next to Kathleen Peterson as well, which was... Yeah, there it is, if we can get that up. Uh, Well, you're you're suggesting similarities of the two cases, and, I mean, there is a striking similarity between their
3: appearance. If you put... Patty Peterson, Kathleen,
0: Atwater Peterson,
3: mm-hmm. Patty being Michael's first wife, right. Yeah. And and Liz together and Michael a picture of Michael's mother, the similarities of their features is I mean it it really blows you away mm. how, how closely they resemble each other. They could all be family members.
0: Thursday, September the 11th, 2003, the day the jury were taken to 1810 Cedar and got a chance to look up at that still bloody staircase is seen by many as one of the most significant moments of the trial. A News & Observer reporter, Demoris Lee, was allowed in with the jurors. It was very stoic. No-one was talking, he said. They were very curious about how far up they can go up that stairwell. Many of them went up to about the fourth, fifth step and would turn back and look even wave their hands to see, look behind them to see if they can fall or if they can possibly catch themselves, he went on. One of the women jurors took one look and then came out. Kelly says she remembers how confined and narrow it was, and Judge Hudson is in no doubt what that visit meant. I think it was the most important uh, event that happened during the
1: course of the trial. Uh, I think that uh, being there on the scene looking at the place where she supposedly fell, uh, seeing uh, the blood spatter marks. Uh, I spoke with the jurors and after the trial, and they said that um, they wanted to see the stairs. Uh, I allowed them to see the stairs, and they said that once they saw the stairs, the moment they saw
0: the stairs... They knew that she did not fall. So can we be clear, once and for all, what, in the view of the prosecution, was used to kill Kathleen Peterson a few weeks before Christmas all those years ago?
3: Well, we had said from the beginning, although it was obviously mischaracterized, that we thought it had to be something like the blowpoke.
0: Like, like the blowpoke.
3: Now, I personally believe that we found the murder weapon. Mike Peterson, and this has never been disclosed either... Um, at the end of the case, the trial had been over about three weeks, and I got a phone call from the U.S. Attorney's Office in the Middle District excuse me, the Eastern District. And they said, We've received a phone call from a lady up in, I believe it was Vermont. And she said, Before the trial was over, and before the mysterious blowpoke was found, Mike Peterson bought three blowpokes. And they said, do you think this is Im- information that you would like to have? Absolutely. Okay. So the lady sent us the shipping order and the credit card receipts when Mike Peterson had bought three blowpokes. So the thought that it mysteriously appeared after three search warrants were executed over every inch of that house is, an, in my view, an impossibility.
0: But David Rudolph, he thought that this was going to be the Perry Mason moment, right? He he clearly thought that in presenting the blowpoke at that late stage was going to be, was going to change everything. It was going to be a proper game changer. I mean, what, what were your thoughts when that was happening in court?
3: Well, obviously, you know, you don't want that to be the end of the case when you have one of those uh, oh my goodness, moments. <laughs> but it, I mean, it happens in trials. I mean, I, <laughs> I've been in roughly 400 trials in my life. So, you know, things like that happen and you just deal with it and move on. And obviously, we didn't have the additional information about Peterson having purchased three blow pokes. Wouldn't that have been a cap to uh, the Perry Mason moment if we'd had that information? But we didn't. And so you just do the best you can. Um, But again, it came back to what I said earlier. We said it had to be something like the blow because it had to be um, tensile enough so that it could wrap around that skull to cause these injuries. Because she had no skull fractures. Yeah. Neither did Elizabeth, which is, in my mind, amazing. So it had to be something that could wrap around the skull to cause
0: those injuries. That would also have some kind of spike element to it?
3: Well, I don't. I don't necessarily. We thought about that, and let's see. We've got the photograph somewhere. Um, we thought about that, but then when you really start thinking about at multiple picture, the, the lacerations,
0: strikes yeah, to
3: the head, and understanding how the skin is going to react to a fast, hard strike which causes laceration, we think this is multiple lacerations within this area which you are you're calling the spike i think it's multiple lacerations within that area
0: and when we look again at the scalp and the size of the lacerations i'm looking at it in color form now because you've had some black and white photographs there you really get a sense of how deep some of those lacerations are they go all the way to the skull now, Judge Hardin's statement there that Michael Peterson bought three blowpokes while the trial was going on was news to us. And in the next edition of Beyond Reasonable Doubt, we put that to Michael Peterson himself. But back in the Durham courthouse in 2003, the long, gruelling, dramatic trial was nearing an end. I thought we'd
3: put on a very good case. Um, but you never... I mean, I gotten out of the business of trying to forecast what jurors might do. Um, again, it's our job to be, do the best that we possibly can to present the strongest case that we can. And beyond
1: that, it's not in my hands. I was hoping they would come back quickly.
0: <laughs> so you get to the baseball. <laughs>
1: I did not believe that they would not resolve the case. I, I thought we'd put too much time, too much energy into it. And I can tell from the jury, jury was very involved with this case. Um, I thought the chances that they would not be able to reach a verdict and there would have to be a mistrial, I thought there was zero chance of that happening. So the only issue for me was were they going to find them guilty or not guilty. And of course, there were only two choices. Guilty of first degree murder or not guilty, so there were not any lesser offenses that they could consider. Uh, I actually thought they had an easy job.
0: So when they came back with that <laughs> verdict, it was it was no they, surprise they, to you?
1: They, they did not believe it was an easy job. I thought that should have been an easy job. I thought the case was clear-cut. He was either guilty or he was not. I
2: just remember taking a preliminary vote um I think we did it on pieces of paper and it was calculated I believe um we left it I think the choices were guilty not guilty neutral perhaps and um it was either guilty or neutral at the time I think there were some that were just needed to take a you know you needed to just take a, a breather and let this okay f- now we're here to make this decision and even though I think most of us knew what our decisions were we didn't want it, it was like okay let's make sure that we're doing this in the right steps it was fairly methodical
1: there were no not guilty
0: no
2: not that not I recall at all. not a single not, not that guilty. I recall mm-hmm.
1: the longer they stayed out I thought that they would find them guilty as opposed to not guilty. Why so? That's just what I believe.
2: Again, I think it was a very um, methodical process. We had been there for three months, four months. Even though um, you know that you want to say guilty, there's a part of you that says, okay, I want to make sure I'm do, make, doing the right process here because at least for me it it okay i'm making the decision about somebody else's life guilty or not guilty that's a, well, a that's respons- a huge responsibility <laughs> thank you that was um it's not to say that the others who flat out the gate said guilty i think they felt the same responsibility it was just they had already met, just i think others just take more time i know i do
1: it doesn't get easy and the reactions that people give are varied. And when you get the feeling that there's going to be trouble, as I have done sometimes in in my career, you better get the law enforcement ready for that. I did not think there was going to be trouble trouble with Mr. Peterson. I I mean, because he wasn't going to do anything. I, I didn't think there was anybody in his family who was going to do anything violent. But I have tried cases where... There are people who didn't like uh, the verdicts, and, you know, they may have a reaction. They may charge someone. Um, and so you do have to be very aware of that.
0: Ladies
4: and gentlemen of the jury, you are returning the following verdict. Be the 12 members of the jury unanimously find the defendant to be guilty of first-degree murder. Peterson has been found guilty of the murder of his wife Kathleen. Convicted of first degree...
2: I know will be looking back on it um, I know that I was I remember kind of grabbing on to the girl who was sitting beside me <laughs> when they were given the verdict it's very difficult to, for me to look out towards the audience I guess so to speak um, I, I wanted to keep looking straight ahead um, and I think think, when, when I look back on that, I think it's because it was such a long, drawn-out trial. We had listened to so much um, intensity and emotion and um, couldn't talk about it that now it was like, oh, and it just came out in the sense of, you know, kind of shaking a little bit. I know that I was, kind of, all of us, once we got down, they escorted us down below, downstairs to the basement <coughs> of the courtroom, we were all crying all, even the man.
0: We leave that incredible image of every single juror in tears, and Michael Peterson on his way to prison back in 2003. My thanks to Judge Orlando Hudson, Judge Jim Harden, and to Kelly Colgan for their time and for their patience. We really do appreciate it. Throughout Beyond Reasonable Doubt, you've heard interviews and comment from all the main characters, and we've tried to paint a picture of the late, much-missed Kathleen Peterson for you. One testimony is missing, the man who decided not to go on the stand in his own defence, Michael Peterson.
4: One of the things that was most strong in my mind, and it became even more apparent, was what Todd said uh, before I took the Alfred plea, he said, Dad, the people who think you're guilty will always think you're guilty. The people who think you're innocent will always think you're innocent. Nobody's going to change their mind, so move on. And uh, I did. I had moved on. And uh, then I realized that Todd really was right, about people not changing their mind. And, and that's a, a, a human, a natural tendency. When we decide something, when we believe something, we believe that, and we're never really going to change our minds. You know, For instance, if you go to a juror, no juror is going to say, oh, I convicted the wrong man, I sent this man to prison, or oh no, my sexuality never entered into my thoughts. Nobody's going to say, oh, you know, I'm a bigot, here, let me tell you that. Uh, The same way with the detective or the police. They're not going to say, uh, oh, we got the wrong man. Or you talk to any of the witnesses uh, on the stand. None of them are going to say, oh, I lied. They're going to stay convinced with what they believe. And I understand that, and that's fine, which is one of the main reasons I wanted to move on, get over this. And I had until, uh, I think it was last month, I got an email. I was in Mexico, and uh, someone said... uh, there is this BBC podcast you should listen to. And my first reaction was, oh, my God, will this never
0: end? Next time on Beyond Reasonable Doubt, episode 15, According to Michael. In an interview we'll play unedited, Michael Peterson tells us what he believes we've got wrong throughout the podcast, and he answers some of your questions. This is a question from Christopher Starr. He says, I'd like to know Michael Peterson's reasoning for taking his shoes and socks off.
4: It was very Slipper.
0: Beyond Reasonable Doubt is a Wise Buddha production for BBC Radio 5 Live.
2: This is Beyond Reasonable Doubt.
0: In Durham, North Carolina.
2: On BBC. Radio 5 Live. 5 Live.